sleep is important, that's when your body repairs itself. It helps with coordination and balance. It's important to bolster memory, attention, concentration. Nightmares happen after trauma because your brain is literally a filing cabinet. This is the Other Side of Adversity podcast, inspiring stories to fill your cup. I'm your host, Laura Massey, and welcome to the show. Our guest today is Dr. Shelby Harris. Dr. Harris is a clinical psychologist in private practice in White Plains, New York. She is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine and treats a wide variety of sleep issues using evidence-based non-medication treatments. She is the former director of the Behavior Sleep Medicine Program at Montefiore Medical Center and author of the book, The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia, Get a Good Night's Sleep Without Relying on Medication. Today, I'm pleased to welcome to the show, Dr. Shelby Harris. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's start off by telling our listeners a little about your background and where you're from. So I'm originally from Rhode Island, and I went to college at Brown University, and they had a um, sleep professor there, and I just fell really in love with the idea of sleep and courses in sleep, so I decided to go to graduate school in psychology and study sleep and sleep psychology, and that landed me to New York. So now I live in Westchester, New York, and I I have a practice where I see patients for sleep issues, anxiety, depression, and I live just outside of the city, see patients from all over with my, and I have two little kids and a husband, keeping me busy. And what was it about that sleep professor that got you hooked? I think the interesting thing for me was that when it comes to sleep, People either completely ignore it and say, I'll sleep when I'm dead, or they are so worried about it that they're willing to jump to medications or over-the-counter pills or alcohol, when in reality, there are really effective behavioral and cognitive treatments that work two sessions to eight sessions for most people. And people just don't know about it. And there's something so rewarding about helping someone sleep better you see it in their face, you see it affect so many areas of their lives that I just wanted to really make a difference in that area. Great. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But I wanted to touch on something else first. So you're a runner, right? Yes. So how many marathons have you run? I have run 14 marathons. It was supposed to be a few more this year, but all of them have gotten canceled reasonably so because of COVID. But yeah, I've done 14 so far. And you were actually a runner in the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. Can you tell me more about that? I was running that year for a sleep charity called Wake Up Narcolepsy. And I run a lot. A lot of my friends know I'm a runner, but that was one where I used to work at at Montefiore Medical Center and I ran their behavioral sleep program. And so I was raising money for narcolepsy. All of my patients knew. And most of my patients have no idea when I'm about to run a marathon. But everyone in the hospital that I worked with knew that I was running it because I was raising money for a charity. And I was running the marathon and I turned onto the final street. I was about a tenth of a mile from finishing and 50 seconds max to the finish line and ahead of me I saw one big cloud in the sky and a large boom and the person who was next to me we just thought it was a cannon we were far enough away and then a few seconds later the second bomb went off pretty close to me on the left side and um yeah we we ran into a parking garage right then but it was basically between me and my family 
took a few hours to get to them because for me to get through the finish line to get to where my family was, luckily they weren't right at the finish line. They were a few blocks away in the common. It was essentially a crime scene. So it was, it was pretty traumatic for myself, many people who ran it. I'm lucky I have my limbs. I'm lucky that I... I can. I was able to run it again the following year, um, but I did lose a good amount of hearing in my left ear as a result, um, as did a lot of people who were uh, around the bombs that day. And how did that affect you afterward? I was in a state of shock, both physically and mentally. Physically, for a good week after the marathon, because when you finish a race, and remember, I had been running at that point for, I think I was about to finish in four hours and seven minutes at that point. And I was four hours and six minutes of running and I had no access to any of my clothes, any liquids, food, anything at the end. So it was like an abrupt stop and then running frantically. Luckily there were people who were so kind and like Copley Plaza would give me a sweatshirt. It was craziness. But I, and then I hopped right in my parents' car and head home. So my whole body froze up and I was on muscle relaxers for a while because I just could not move. I didn't have any nourishment in my body or proper cool down. And then just mentally, I was in a state of shock, but that's actually a very protective mechanism. So even for people who, anyone who's been through trauma, as a psychologist, we don't diagnose PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder right at the beginning because your brain has been through a shock and it needs some time to process itself and process what happened. The interesting part of it was that, I remember just being kind of out of it for a week I had just one child at the time. People were checking on me and also just having a lot of friends who are psychologists kept coming and just kind of, I knew they were assessing me, but I didn't want to say stop assessing me. And people were just checking on me. And it was one of those things where it was very public. So people knew I had been through a big trauma. No one else around me had been through the same thing. Still to this day, I don't know anyone else who was in the same spot who really had gone through the same thing as I did. And were you able to run again after that? It took me a while to really even, I remember my first run back with some friends, I was just hysterical at crying. And it took me a while to really get back to running at um, any bigger races, but because I live just outside of New York City, I really, I'm a big fan of practice what I preach. And I wanted, to, I loved running and I didn't want to give it up and I didn't want the terrorists to feel like they had won and had taken that from me. So I worked towards just kind of exposing myself towards running again. And I would run on the treadmill and I'd run on the treadmill to various big city routes that I could see on the treadmill. Some of them have them programmed in. And then I would eventually get used to running the Boston route on the treadmill. And then I eventually started running bigger city races in Manhattan. So I'd have people around me. And then I eventually, like my first marathon back was in Newport, Rhode Island. So it was a smaller marathon, but I was in a crowd. Crowds really made me nervous for a long time. I still, to this day, noises, loud booms set me off a bit. Not to the point that it used to. The smell of gunpowder really makes me nervous. And just being in crowds in general, I'm always still a little bit more vigilant, but I still do it. And I get more comfortable as time goes on to the point where I, I run New York City. I run Chicago. I run... Paris, Rome. I try to run big city races. People think I just like to travel, but I really do it more therapeutically because I want to be around larger crowds so that I don't get scared. If you continue to do it, it does make it easier in the long run. So it's going to be interesting actually, because there aren't any big city races. I haven't been in crowds for a while right now because of COVID that when I go back to doing races, it'll be interesting to see if I'm more sensitive to it or if it's a little bit better overall. And do you still randomly get triggered by it? The Boston Marathon is interesting because it comes up a lot in the press and even 
like I'll just be reading a random thing and online and then there'll be some mention of the Boston Marathon or there'll be some ticker on the bottom about it. And it just comes up randomly in interviews and all these other things that it just makes me still sensitive to it. But I only recently over the past maybe two years started talking about it more with people. My closest friends and family I talked about it with, but talking about it more publicly because I do think that there is something to be said to, like I said, practice what you preach. And the more I do it, the more I get out there, the more, the easier-ish it gets, but it will never fully go away. It's always a piece of me, but it's also a piece of history and I want to share that as well. Did it affect your sleep at all? Yeah, for the first few weeks, I was definitely sleeping very, I mean, the first week, it's hard to say if it was the traumatic part, my brain healing itself, or it was like, I physically was in so much pain. But then for a few weeks, I was having more nightmares. And the interesting part is that I also understand the whole idea of why nightmares happen after trauma, because your brain is literally a filing cabinet. And the way that I believe it, nightmares happen and the way that we believe it in the sleep field is we don't really analyze dreams so much, but dreams are really, like I said, your brain's filing cabinet during REM sleep. So you're trying to process if something happens, how do I make a file to deal with it in the future if it happens again? And when there's scary events that are happening, you wake up from them. So your brain actually doesn't make the file to file it away. So you go back to sleep and you have a similar dream again or a nightmare. And then you wake up again and you don't file it. So you, it, that's when recurrent nightmares start to happen. So I knew I was able to, at least for myself, put it in perspective and understand why it was happening. And then after about, about a month, month and a half, they started to dissipate a bit and got better. So speaking of nightmares, I know many people, myself included, have been having very vivid dreams during the pandemic. Is that normal? So normal. It was like, I can't remember which weekend it was, but... All of my patients, and I, like I said, I don't do any dream analysis or anything, but I do treat nightmares. But like for some reason, all of my patients were bringing up vivid dreams, like the exact same two-week period that it was starting. I can't remember how far into the whole quarantine situation was, but yeah, totally normal. It's our brain is under stress, trying to figure out how do I deal with it. And it's always a jumbled version of whatever's going on, but vivid dreams are normal. We don't ever really treat them unless it really starts to become a longer term thing. You feel like it's impairing the quality of your sleep in the longer term. But right now, I mean, there have been countless articles online about the, the whole vivid dream epidemic that's been going on for some odd reason. But yeah, it's a thing. So let's go back to basics. So let's talk about the importance of sleep because a lot of people don't realize how important it is until you're yeah. not getting enough. So let's start with why do we sleep? Well, that's a great question. And it's easier to say, what are the things that happen when we don't sleep? So sleep is important for, if you think about it, like we always think about the things that happen when we don't sleep. So our memory gets impaired. So it's important to bolster memory. It's important to bolster your attention, concentration, your focus. It helps with, if we think about just mood and emotion consolidation and just quality of life, it also helps with coordination and balance and small motor skills. It helps with even things such as like growth when we're, if you get the right, if like, for example, if you're exercising and you want to like have muscle growth or repair from a tough exercise, you need to have deep sleep because that's when you have human growth hormone that's released. So that's when your body repairs itself. Um, it repairs blood vessels, organs in your body. 
Then we also think about things like if you don't sleep enough, you're at a greater risk for heart disease, cardiovascular issues, stroke, metabolic issues, diabetes, and even sleep is important for reproduction. There are people who tend to be having trouble getting pregnant or have frequent miscarriages. Sometimes that's due to the poor quality of sleep that they're getting. So sleep really does impact many, many areas of our lives, impacts so many parts of our body. And can it be a trigger for anxiety or depression? Yes, 100%. So an older school belief in psychiatry was if you have depression or anxiety, a symptom of it was a sleep issue. So you always treated the depression or anxiety. But what we've started to learn over the past 10 to 15 years is that poor sleep can really set off a depression, can set off an anxiety issue. And that one of the first signs of someone having a manic episode when it comes to bipolar disorder is their sleep gets off. So I'm always, always watching for sleep issues in many of my patients if they've been doing well for a while, because that will be a red flag. And what often prevents people from getting good quality and quantity of sleep? It could be a multitude of things. It could just be that you're not making it quantity. It could be something such as binge watching Netflix at night, or I'm not making sleep a priority because I'm working too many hours at night, or I don't turn my phone off and I'm texting and getting texts left and right. But then it could be things like a racing mind. It can be hormones. It could be medical issues other than hormones, such as a diagnosis of cancer, or sometimes it's medications that you're taking that could cause trouble with sleeping, or awakening to have to urinate a lot in the middle of the night. Age also is a factor. So as you get older, it's not always that you need less sleep, but the depth and quality of the sleep that you get gets less. So you're not having deep, deep sleep as you get older and it gets more broken. But then there are other things like medically that could impact sleep quality. So it could be things like sleep apnea. So if you snore, choke or gasp in your sleep or you're excessively sleepy during the day, those are all signs that you might not be getting, even if you get a lot of sleep at night, that your quality of sleep might not be great. And also just keep a notice like what your bed looks like in the morning. So if you're someone who wakes up and you're still sleepy, even after being asleep for eight or nine hours and your sheets are on a mess and everything looks like you've kind of been all over the place, you're probably, you could be like kicking around a lot in the middle of the night and not even know it. And that could be influencing your sleep. So there's a myriad of things that could influence it from things that we purposefully do to things that our bodies are doing to us in our minds. And what is stress-based insomnia? Insomnia is insomnia, but stress-based would imply that you're anxious or you have a lot of stress going on and it's making it harder for you to turn your brain off and you either have trouble falling asleep or waking up in the middle of the night or you wake up too early. So we treat insomnia for most people the same way across the board, whether it's working on their bedtimes, their wait times, their what they do in bed if they can't sleep, their thoughts about sleep. A lot of times people are trying to force themselves to get to sleep or they worry about the effects of it. But if there's someone that has a lot of stress or anxiety going on, then I might add in more relaxation techniques, meditation, mindfulness meditation, some of that on top of it. But the, always the basics are the same for every single person who wants behavioral treatment for insomnia, regardless of stress or not. So let's go back to CBTI. What is it and what do you do? So CBTI, so that's my area of specialty. So it's cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. So CBT is a general type of therapy that is used for anxiety. It's used for depression, bipolar disorder, overeating, anorexia. We use it for so many different things. 
but we also have adapted it for insomnia. That being said, it's a little bit different than a typical CBT. So a lot of people are like, I've been in CBT for anxiety. It's not going to help my insomnia. It's different. So the other thing is that it's not just sleep hygiene. So what it is, is it's a treatment that incorporates many different little like kind of sub-treatments. And we use them all in a package to help someone sleep better. And it's a very short term for most people, evidence-based treatment that is the gold standard in all of sleep medicine and primary care. And for most people should be the first line treatment for anyone who has insomnia more so than medication. But the problem is there aren't many people specialize in it. So a lot of people will say things like, oh, I've done sleep hygiene. I don't drink caffeine. I don't nap and I don't have, I don't use any screens in my bed. That's fine. That's a piece of CBT, but there's other things that we do. So we'll tailor your bedtime and wake time specifically to what we think might help consolidate your sleep a little bit more. We might give you other rules of things you can and cannot do in bed. We might give you ways to challenge the thoughts that you're having about your sleep, whether it's trying to force sleep to happen or worries that you're having about sleep. And it's that treatment package that we tailor to the person that really makes up CBT for insomnia, more so than just basic sleep hygiene. Anything else you want to add? If it's not enough, then we talk about medications and then we talk about other treatments, over-the-counter supplements, acupuncture, whatever it might be. But for most people, you should be trying out CBT for insomnia, not just like a few nights here and there, but like a real full-on effort with it. And there are, there, you can do it in apps. I have a book that does CBT for insomnia with women. There's so many different forums to do it, and there are clinicians such as myself that are out there. And with telehealth now, it's really opened, or it's made things wide open to really get access to good care if you need it. So this is a very stressful time for people now. What are ways that people can help manage their sleep in a time of heightened stress? I think the first thing is consistency. So when we start, our bodies have a natural biological rhythm set to them. So bedtime, wake time really needs to be set. So when COVID and quarantine hit, people are like, oh, I have to get up early more. Great. But they started to not use an alarm clock and really kind of wake up whenever they wanted to. And if you do that on top of stress, you'll start to have trouble sleeping because you're sleeping into different times. There's no consistency with your wake time. And it can really start to affect your bedtime. And people will start to nap a little bit more if they're not sleeping. So if you just keep the same wake time and ideally bedtime seven days a week, not just on the weekdays, but seven days a week, it really does help. That's something for myself I'm extremely strict about. And it has helped. I'm up by 6.15 every single day, even on the weekends. You can sleep in a little bit later on the weekend if you need to, like a half hour. But when you start doing more than an hour... It can really, really disrupt things. And the other big thing that I think people need to do more of is that if you're not sleeping, don't lay in bed. Because the more you lay in bed, tossing and turning, looking at your phone, I mean, the news exposure is a whole other thing. Like, I don't want people on their phones an hour before bed and limit your news exposure. But if you're just laying in bed, tossing and turning, trying to force sleep to happen, you're going to make yourself start to actually associate the bed with being about stress and being awake. Even, even if you know the beds for sleep, your body's going to actually start to associate the bed for a place of being awake. So what I tell people is get up, go sit somewhere else, do something quiet, come and relaxing in dim light. And then like a book, something without a screen, do something that's not news related. It's something that could be meditation. It could be deep breathing. It can be reading with a book and a lamp, but I don't want you sitting in the dark, just staring because that's not good either. Coloring books, the adult coloring books are great. Find something that passes the time so you're not 
sitting there hyper-focused on sleep. And then go back to bed when you're actually asleep again, but don't sleep on your couch because you'll start turning yourself to sleep on the couch. But really, if you're consistent about your bedtime, wake time, and you don't lay in bed, don't lay in bed awake, and you only sleep in bed, it does help in the long run. So actually in your book, I love the way you talk about the, having like the hunger for sleep. Can you Mm -hmm. have an analogy and and share a little bit? about? So that's, that's why the awakening time is really important. I'm a fan of the wake time because if you get up at the same time every day, what tends to happen is you will get, essentially you're going to build up a hunger and appetite for sleep. So if you wake up later some days or you take a nap, It's like you're snacking on sleep throughout the day. And if you're snacking on sleep, you know, what I want people to do is really get a bigger appetite. So by not napping, by waking up at the same time every day and then going to bed around the same time every night, you're going to be sufficiently hungry to fall asleep and then have a good meal of sleep throughout the night. And that we call that sleep drive more technically, but it's really just an appetite for sleep essentially. And in your book, you also talk about dedicated worry time. I just love that concept. Can you tell me a little more about that? You, you spend 20 minutes a day and you sit there and you just say, okay, I'm going to worry about anything and everything. And there are different ways to do it. My book has some examples, but you just sit there and you worry about anything and everything. You set a time for 20 minutes. And then there are different ways you can do it. Um, whether you address the worry or you just kind of worry the heck out of anything and everything. And then when the timer's off, you're done. You take the paper, you can crumple it up, throw it away, whatever you want. And then after that, You then take, if you start worrying again, which you will, we all do, you say to yourself, not now during worry time, not now during worry time. You essentially, you you try to do worry time sometime earlier in the evening, not right before bed. But what it does is by, you're not saying, I don't worry about it because that actually makes you think more about it. You're saying, I will think about you, but I'll think about you during this designated time. So you're not ignoring it. You're just pushing it to a specific time. And for some people that actually helps to reduce the amount of time that you're worrying. So with people, you know, some people's sleep are being thrown off by this pandemic. Like when do you know when it's just like a short-term disruption versus an actual insomnia problem that you need to seek help? Right. So we usually can't, we don't, don't usually diagnose insomnia until it's like been it, chronic insomnia until it's been around three months. But these are all things that you can start doing right at the beginning right? So if you're, make some of the changes that we're talking about, look at my book, look at online at just behavioral treatment for insomnia, make some of those changes, track your sleep with a sleep diary. That's really helpful. If you do that stuff and you can really catch it at the beginning for in the first month or so, but if it's starting to go on two, three months and it's just not getting better, despite making changes, then it, it might be helpful to talk with someone and get, get a, more of a special specialist eye looking at you. And what about the other side, sleeping too much? Can that also be a problem? Oh, for sure. So those are called, instead of insomnia, where you're not sleeping enough, those are called hypersomnias. So that, those are typically disorders such as we call it idiopathic hypersomnia, where you just, no matter how much sleep you get, you're just always unrefreshed and sleepy. And then the most common one that people think of is something like narcolepsy. So you, people with narcolepsy, they sleep at night. It t- tends to be very broken at times, but they're excessively sleepy all day long. And they feel, um, like imagine if you hadn't slept for three days, that's how someone with untreated narcolepsy tends to feel. And then there are other types of hypersomnias where people have these cyclical sort of excessive sleepiness issues, or you can be excessively sleepy due to medical issues, such as like Parkinsonism. There's a whole bunch of things, stroke we really try to rule out all that stuff. And then there's some people like they, they've it's a debated 
subtype, but like even women who are like right before they get their period, sometimes they have insomnia, others actually get excessively sleepy. And then the other big thing culprit we see is people who are excessively sleepy, but get a good amount of sleep at night. We always want to roll out sleep apnea because that's like the biggest culprit for most people that they're doing some sort of snoring and that's making them sleepy because they're getting poor quality sleep, even if they think they're sleeping at night. But especially during a time like this, where there's like a traumatic trigger, can it be like a sign of depression if someone's sleeping too much? Oh, for sure. So it can be psychiatric issues, avoidance. I see that a lot of times. So if someone's sleeping a lot, it's all, it's definitely a sign of, it can be a sign of depression. So depression, one of the symptoms is insomnia. But like we said earlier, insomnia can also cause depression. But another symptom, you could either go one way or the other. You could be sleeping fine. You could have insomnia, but you can also have excessive sleepiness. So a lot of people, I have a lot of people right now I'm working with who just, they go to bed too early and they're like sleeping a lot during the day. They're going to bed like 7, 8 p.m. at night because they just want to put an end to the day and not have to think about anything. So sleep is almost a, a way of avoiding. So I know we've kind of covered a lot. Any, anything else you wanted to talk about? Any final thoughts? The one other thing is that if you're on medication, don't think that you're, you have to necessarily be on medication forever Some for sleep issues. Some people are, and that's, you know, it is what it is, but there are a lot of people that we work with in the field who had been on medications for a long time, but hadn't worked with someone behaviorally to really get off of them. And it's, it is another option. So sometimes people don't speak up about it or they don't know that it's an option, but Medication isn't the only treatment and it's not the only evidence-based treatment either. So talk with your doctor if you don't want to necessarily be on a benzo or Ambien or whatever it is for long-term because there might be another alternative for you. So where can people find you to learn more? They go to my website. It's just drshelbyharris.com and you can get a lot of my info about my practice right there. And like I said, I have a practice in Westchester doing a lot of telehealth right now. Mostly in New York, but because a lot of the license restrictions have been lifted, I'm seeing people from other states right now. Definitely go to my website, and then you can also find my book there if you're interested in trying anything like that. I am on Instagram at, at sleepbackshelby. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And Thank you for having me, Laura. I really appreciate it. I always like talking sleep. I could talk about it all day long. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. That's all for this episode of the Other Side of Diversity podcast. Hope you've been inspired. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show or leave a review. It's the equivalent of supporting a small business owner. Love fully, live fully, and shine your beautiful light. Thank you.